Thanks for listening to The Chapel Podcast. At The Chapel Church, our passion is to share the hope of Jesus to individuals, the community, and the world. Listen in as Pastor Brandon Joyner shares an encouraging and challenging message from God's Word. Someone once said that if if your message could be preached in a Jewish synagogue and be accepted by the people that's listening, then that sermon does not contain the gospel. Therefore, it should not be preached. Every single time a sermon is preached, it should always point towards the gospel. One of the biggest reasons why so many people find God no longer relevant or the church no longer relevant is because they fail to see that the gospel impacts every single area of their life. As Christians, we live in daily hope because of the gospel. The book of Romans, as we've been talking about this entire year, is primarily focusing on the doctrine of the gospel. It's, it's focusing on uh, really what the gospel is, and it's a book that the Apostle Paul explains regarding the gospel and how it is, affects every single area of our life. Salvation is not the gospel. Salvation is a response to the gospel. The gospel is the ultimate hope, the only answer to man's total depravity. Just as most books, the books of Romans is divided. The book of Romans is divided in multiple different sections. You have the first section, which speaks about man's sin and God's judgment upon sin. The second section speaks of God's uh, hope for mankind, and that is Jesus Christ. And then the third section, chapters 6, 7, and 8, focus on how we as Christians are supposed to live through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the sanctification process. It's the process of becoming more like Christ. You could really say that the third section of Romans, which occurs from those chapters 6, 7, and 8, explains how the gospel gives believers power and hope to overcome the power and the penalty of sin. But this morning we find ourselves back in Romans chapter 9. So please take your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 9 this morning. As we mentioned last week, upon the first appearance of reading Romans chapter 9, Chapters 9, 10, and 11 all seem out of place with the overall overall theological framework of Romans. It seems to be more of a parenthetical phrase is what some theologians claim. Other theologians claim that this is the foundation of the entire book. And normally we would expect the rich teaching that occurs from chapters 1 through 8 to flow seamlessly into the practical living of theology in light of that theology in chapters 12 through 16. But in chapters 9 through 11, Paul pauses, as we discussed last week, to address this pertinent question. If God loves His people and He keeps His promises, then why does it seem that God has forgotten the nation of Israel and the Old Testament promises? See, this particular chapter during the writing of this particular book occurred at a time where majority of the Jews rejected Christ as the Messiah. Majority of them completely shoved Christ out of the picture. So if the Jews were part of God's chosen nation, as the Old Testament points to, and God made many promises to the nation of Israel, why were so many Jews rejecting God? Why were so many Jews pushing God out of the picture? And what we see here within these three chapters, 9, 10, and 11, Paul speaks of the past, present, and the future status of the nation of Israel regarding their relationship to God. In chapter 9, we see Israel's past. In chapter 10, we see their present situation. And in chapter 11, we see the future. So by observing the history, the past, present, and future of Israel, we see just a glimpse into the nature of God. Within Romans chapter 9, Paul addresses this heavily debated topic, and that is the subject of God's sovereign election. 
As we observed last week through the example of God choosing Isaac to be the seed of Abraham that would bring forth Israel, we see that God's faithful call is delivered through His divine selection. God's faithful call is delivered through His divine selection. Not everyone has the same call or is part of God's overall divine call, just as we see with Isaac. Even in spite of Abraham and Sarah's lack of faith when it comes to the promises of God, we see that God's sovereign plan was not altered. Through the example of God choosing Jacob over Esau, we observe that God's faithful call corresponds with His divine plan. By the mere fact that God purposely chose the younger son, Jacob, over Esau, even before they were born, we see that God's election is not based upon merit or heritage or works. God chooses whom He wants in order to accomplish His kingdom purposes. Now, as I mentioned last week, it's important to note that these three chapters are speaking about Israel. The chapters are not given to define the relationship between man's free will and God's sovereign election. That's not the purpose here. These chapters are not speaking about man's predestination to hell or damnation, which is referred to double predestination. That's not the purpose of these three chapters here. These chapters are speaking about Israel's Situation, But through the example of God's dealings with Israel, what we see here is really this beginning to understand of God's sovereign election and how that corresponds with His overall divine plan. And I think that why so many people um, walk away from God is because their relationship with God is just surface. It's just surface. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later on in this, in this message here this morning, but... Um, I'm going to actually mention it. There's a movie that uh, some of you had turned me on to, me and my wife, and we watched most of it this week, but I would highly recommend it. It's called, it's on Netflix if you have Netflix. It's called American Gospel in Christ Alone. It's, first, it's the first of two, I think. Highly recommend it. And the premise behind that is really just the, uh, the addressing of the prosperity gospel and how that is a false gospel and it comes short of what the gospel truly is. But what's so riveting about what they portray in that movie is how we as Christians fail to understand and grasp that the gospel is so much more than salvation. It is a means of everyday life. It's the process of us becoming like Christ. But going back to the situation that we had between God or between Jacob and Esau when observing this particular example of God's election, sometimes it is hard to grasp the fairness of what we believe is fair when it comes to God's dealing. For example, in Romans chapter 9, verses 11 through 13, Paul describes God's choice regarding Jacob and Esau in this way. You can look down at it. For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purposes of God according to the election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Anyone reading this without a full understanding of the nature of God or really the scripture in and of itself, would see God as an unjust and unfair God. This verse seems to support a view that God is unfair rather than being a just God. And apparently, we weren't the only ones that came to that conclusion. Because Paul says in verse 14, What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. And so in Romans chapter 9, verses 14 through 18, Paul addresses this righteousness of God, this issue that people had, head on. And so if you could stand with me out of respect of God's word, we're going to read verses 9, or sorry, verses 14 through 18 in Romans chapter 9. This is what it says. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. 
For he saith unto Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all of the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. After reading this portion of scripture, there are several questions, if we're honest, that can arise from this. First off, we could say, how can God be called righteous and fair when he chooses some people and not others? What is his choice based upon? Is it based upon the very whims of God? Does God purposely show compassion to some people and withhold compassion for others? How is it fair that God would allow Pharaoh to be elevated to a point of authority and then harden his heart without ever there being a seeming chance of restoration with Pharaoh? These are questions that we can wrestle with when we read this particular portion. And through this next section, what we're going to do is we're going to dive into this second facet of God's character. We're going to examine the righteousness of God in, 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 in light of His sovereign election. And my prayer is that at the conclusion of our time together this morning, your heart will be encouraged in the fact that God's sovereign election does not negate the fact that He is righteous, but rather it elevates the righteousness of God. The title of the message this morning is God's Sovereign Election, Part 2, The Righteousness of God. Thank you. you. may be seated. The Righteousness of God. And I fail to remind people of this, but we usually have handouts that we give you, but because we're trying to practice safety here, the handouts have been uploaded to our website. So if you go to thechapelchurch.com, right on the homepage there, you're going to see a little link that says Sermon Notes, so you can follow along if you, if you see fit. Before we dive into our lesson this morning, it would be a good reminder for all of us to define what the sovereignty of God actually means. A commentator defines it this way, that God is a sovereign being means he is absolutely free to do as he pleases. The freedom is inherent within his own character. Inherent means inborn or a part of his very nature. God's sovereignty involves the idea that his actions come wholly from his own pleasure, His decisions are made entirely on the basis of his own will. His freedom to act as he wills is not limited or conditioned by any considerations outside of himself. He is not under obligation to anyone or any principle except for his own character. Included in this sovereignty is the truth that he is omnipotent, so he is not limited by considerations of power either. He can do anything that he wills to do. No other being in this universe, not man or angel, is truly sovereign. To be sovereign in the truest sense is to be God. So then the question is this, is God unjust? Well, of course, as Christians, our quick response would be, of course not. But how do we justify what we just read? How do we explain verses like verse 13 that says, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated? How do we explain that? God is just, but we got these verses in Scripture that are a little bit difficult for people that are exploring Christianity. But just with any passage, it is a key to understanding. It really comes down to the proper interpretation. The word hate in verse 13 does not mean the type of hate that we typically think of. Case is not allowed to say the word hate. I hate that, or I hate this, or I, whatever. We haven't gotten to the point now where we help them differentiate between hating of sin and hating of other things. We just say, don't say the word hate. 
okay? And so for him, he can't say that. But within this context, it's really a quote from Malachi chapter 1, verses 2-3. through 3. Within the Old Testament, the word hate can have several different meanings, while most of the time the word hate, as we think of it, can express some sort of emotion towards something. I, I hate that thing. And obviously, this, most of the time, not the right attitude to have. The word hate here in ancient Near Eastern cultures has more to do with one's priorities rather than his emotions. So within the context of Romans 9.13, Paul is not saying that God emotionally hated Esau, but that God's priority for the nation of Israel was on Jacob and not on Esau. That's what he means by hate. But let's just pause here for a second. The important thing to remember that the Bible is more of an Eastern book than it is a Western book. This is a script that comes from that movie as well. So a lot of the truths that are presented from us today or for us today come from an Eastern way of thinking and not a Western way of thinking. So for example, when we come to a conclusion of a lot of things, and those of you that are scientists in here can appreciate this, we think more of on a linear way. A is B and C and D. That's how we come to the conclusions. This, 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 and this, and this. Whereas an Easter way of thinking, and Brian Chappell says this, he's a pastor, he says, when an Eastern thinker sometimes represents truth, he is not saying that this thought leads to that thought leads to that thought, but rather speaking around the truth so that you get the truth. And so with that understanding, think about the Old Testament. What do you have going on in the Old Testament? You have, you have uh, prophets that were raised to lead the people, and they failed. You had the Ten Commandments, the law that was given, and that failed. You had the kings that were there to lead the people, and that failed. As you read the Old Testament, written from this Eastern perspective, what you begin to see is that the truth about Christ is presented by showing what did not work in the Old Testament. This didn't work, this didn't work, this didn't work, this didn't work. In comes the New Testament, Jesus Christ, that is the only thing that works to take care of man's problem. So it's really understanding how the Bible is written that will help us in the interpretation process. So when it comes down to the interpretation, when we read phrases like Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I aided in Romans 9.13, it is important to understand the overall context of the truth presented. Again, God is not saying that he hated Esau. He didn't eat Esau. He hated Esau and the way that we think of hate, but rather God, through his sovereign election, chose Jacob, made him a priority in order to fulfill God's kingdom purposes. So it's with that understanding that we understand that particular situation. But that doesn't explain the righteousness of God in light of election. Through our passage this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to observe three points that Paul makes to help us really understand the righteousness of God in light of his sovereign election. First off, and that's this in your notes, God is righteous because God is God. Now, if you answer that, some people are like, well, that's, that's an argument that I can't argue with. You just basically said God's righteous because God is God. So let's unpack this a little bit in light of Scripture and who God is. In verse 15, it says, For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Paul is quoting Exodus 33:19 there, which is a statement that God spoke to Moses in connection with Moses' prayer for general forgiveness of the people, which was refused, and his request to behold God's glory, which was granted. With reference to the latter, God asserts that his gift is of his own free grace without any recognition of Moses' right to claim it on the ground of merit or service. The, Paul, the, the point that Paul is making here is that because God is God, God has the right to choose according to his divine election without violating his other attributes. 
God can pick and choose whomever He wants in order to correspond with His overall divine plan, and He does so without violating His righteousness because God is God. To better understand this, hold your finger here, and let's flip back to a parable that's familiar with a lot of us in Matthew chapter 20. This is the parable of the vineyard, also known as the parable of the laborers. How many of you have heard of this parable before in Matthew chapter 20? We're going to look down in verses 1 through 16. At this particular moment, Jesus is giving this parable to explain that God has both the right and the authority to pick and choose whom He wills to fulfill His kingdom purposes. And here, here's what the passage has to say. For the kingdom of heaven is likened to a man that is an householder which went out early in the morning to hire laborers into his vineyard. And when he had agreed with the laborers for a penny a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others idle standing there in the marketplace. And he said unto them, Go ye also into the vineyard, and whatsoever is right I will give to you. And they went their way. And again, he went out about the sixth and ninth hour and did likewise. And when the eleventh hour went out and found others standing idle, he saith unto them, Why stand ye here all day idle? They say unto them, Because no man hath hired us. He saith unto them, Go ye also into the vineyard, and whatever is right, that shall ye receive. Then he continues on and he says, So when even was come, the Lord of the vineyard saith unto the stewards, Call all the laborers here that I give them to hire, beginning from the last unto the first. And when they came, they were hired about the eleventh hour. They received every man a penny. But when the first came, they supposed that they should have received more money because they worked longer, and they likewise received every man a penny. And when they had received it, they murmured against the good men of the house, saying, These last have wrought but one hour, and thou hast made them equal unto us, which have borne the burden in the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, and said, Friend, I do to thee no wrong. Didst thou not agree with me for a penny? Take that as thine, and go thy way. I will give unto the last, even as unto thee. It is not lawful for me to do what I will do with thine. Is thine eye evil, because I am good? So the last shall be first, and the first last. For many be called, but few chosen. The point that Jesus is making in this parable is that God has the authority to extend grace to whomever He wills. And this is not a violation of the justice and the fairness of God, but really a facet of the overwhelming grace of God. We'll unpack that here. When Jesus says in verse 16 that the last shall be first and the first last, He is placing everyone that comes to Christ on a level playing field. So when the thief that's on the cross that's suffering and dying who's lived his whole life in complete and total depravity, estranged from God, not living for God because he had no part of God. And when he received Christ there on the cross, and Jesus responds back to him, today you will be with me in paradise, he receives the same inheritance that a person receives has been saved at a young age and has lived his entire life in dedicated fellowship with Christ. God, in his mercy and his compassion, can extend that to whomever he wants because he's God. The same principle is applied to serving God now. You think about those that are faithful to God. Okay? You think about those that have been following God and others that are faithful to God. But those others that are faithful to God seem to have a whole lot more favor and blessing from God than what we do. That's not unfairness from God. That's part of God's divine plan. God 
and he rewards faithfulness, but he does it in different ways. God can choose to give grace and mercy to whomever he wants to. Perhaps this modern day illustration will, I will explain this. In every metropolitan area, there's this common site known as a labor pool. I'm almost certain that down here at the corner of, um, um, I think it's Smith Level Road, there's, there's, there's this area here where uh, workers stand in the mornings waiting for people to come and hire them out. I've seen it multiple different times. Many men there. This place is a community where the unemployed gathered in hopes of being offered work for the day by the local employer. The jobs are usually for the day at set in an hourly wage determined by the employer, and they can begin early or late in the day whenever someone is looking for workers happens to appear. There's been many times there's a project uh, that we need to have painted on the side of our house that's high, and I'm afraid of heights, that I've wanted to go down there and have somebody come paint the side of my house. Maybe one day I'll do that. Imagine this scenario, though. Imagine that there's a group of laborers, and they're congregating, and they're waiting for that day of work. An employer comes by at 9 o'clock in the morning. He selects several men, and he transports them to his farm. Agreeing to pay them $100 for the day's work, at noon he goes back and secures another group and takes them to the farm, and then does the same thing at 3 o'clock, then at 5 o'clock. When the day is almost over, he returns to the labor pool and gets a final group and then takes them to the farm. That final group only works for a couple of hours. Almost around or around 7 o'clock when the day is, is completed, the men line up for their pay. The first group has worked 10 hours. The second group of men, 7 hours. The third group, 4 hours. And the last group, only 2 hours. The foreman then begins to pay the first group. I'm sorry, the last group first. They receive $100 for their 2 hours of work. The word quickly spreads back through the line, and that wage is being greatly increased. The last group hired worked only two hours, and they received $100. That's $50 an hour. Those then begin to calculate. They say, we worked 10 hours. We're going to receive $500 for our day's wage, and they are extremely excited. But when the entire group is processed through the pay line, they all receive the same as the last group hired, and that's $100 for the day. The workers in the first group are outraged. We worked five times as long as the last group, yet they received the same wage as well. That's not right. We should have received more. And calmly, the owner of the farmer or the farm replies, what's not right about your wages? You agreed to work for me for $100. I paid you $100. What's unjust about that? I followed through with my word. While the first group stammered for a reply, he went on. What I choose to do with my money is really not your concern. As long as I am just with you, I can be generous as I see fit with anyone that I want to. Going back to the parable of the laborers that Jesus gives, that's the same principle that he gives with God. God is God. God can choose to work in any way that he sees fit. And this is used to illustrate that the things in the kingdom of God often work diametrically opposite to the way that we think things work here in the human kingdom. But this parable is illustrating this intersection of justice and mercy, which is exactly what Paul is speaking about in Romans chapter 9. And the point that Jesus is making in this parable is that the large pool of laborers have no right to work. They're at the complete mercy of the outside employer to change their destiny for the day. 
The employer has the means to prosper them and accomplish his own purposes as well, so he has the privilege of choosing from the larger pool those whom he desires. The employer pays when he stated to the first group just as he said he was going to, therefore making him just. He pays what he wants to pay to the last group, so therefore he is generous. He is also merciful, not giving what is deserved. Grace is receiving what we do not deserve. Mercy is not receiving what we do deserve. In the case of the last group of workers, they did not receive what they deserved. They received so much more. So the employer was not only just, he was generously merciful at the same time. See, God has the authority to show every single person mercy. And he does so, but he oftentimes does it in different ways. But none of that makes God unrighteous. God is still righteous. The mere fact that God shows any of us grace is a testament to his righteousness. Because none of us deserve any of it. God shows grace to undeserving people. We see this in Luke chapter 4, verses 25 through 27. God bypasses all of the widows and lepers in Israel to show grace to two Gentiles. In Luke chapter 4, verses 25 through 27, it states, But I tell you of a truth, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elias, but when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was all throughout the land, but unto none of them was Elias sent, save unto Sarepta, a city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. And many lepers were in the time of Israel, during the time of Elias the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, saving Naaman the Syrian. Because we are humans, we don't always understand why God works in the way that he does work. But based upon the character of God, we know that God's actions are always righteous and always just. I was on the phone yesterday with one of my good friends. His wife is, 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 had a miscarriage, but it was a, it was a different kind of a miscarriage. And I don't remember all the technical terms, and so maybe some of you can um, help me out with that. But basically the situation was she became pregnant. The baby was no longer viable but she still felt, and her body felt that she was still pregnant. Is it a molar pregnancy? Does anybody know the term on that? Okay, I think that might be it. But basically, the point of the story was this. As he's on the phone with me, he said, Brandon, I've already been through it. He's a solid Christian. He's like, I've already been through this before. He said, I don't mean this to be heartless. God's already taken my baby to heaven, and I'm at peace with that. But what I'm struggling with is my wife is still sick. The procedure for my wife doesn't come until Wednesday. I've been dealing with this now for two weeks. Her body still thinks that she's pregnant, but there's no baby there. That's what I'm having a hard time with. Brandon, I've dealt with this already once. This is the second time. And the only thing that I could say to him was that, first off, I don't understand what you're going through, and I'm not going to pretend to. But what I do know is this. God is in control, and what seems to, what seems to be unjust and unfair right now is not thoughts that are coming from God himself because everything that God does is just and is fair. But here on this side of eternity, we may not fully understand why God does what he does. We probably won't. But based upon who God is, we trust in his sovereignty. We trust in his righteousness. We trust in his goodness. Perhaps both of these specific displays of God's grace to those Gentiles, as I mentioned back in Luke chapter 4, is a way of God showing the nation of Israel that His grace is not contained to a limited group of people, but to whom He wills and when He wills it, according to His sovereign election. Again, none of us deserve any grace from God. The mere fact that we can, as Christians, proclaim the grace of God in our life is a testament to God's righteousness. 
God is the absolute ruler who does not have to offer any grace, but he did, and this leads us to our second point. Because God is righteous, depraved man has mercy. Because God is righteous, depraved man has mercy. In verse 16, it says, So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. The it that Paul speaks of in this verse is in reference to the mercy and the grace of God. In other words, God is under no obligation to the will of man. I I wish he was at times. My will. God, please just do this for me. God is under no obligation. God can do what God wants to do. We don't choose the grace of God. God extends His mercy to us as an undeserving group of people. Matthew Henry explains it this way. Whatever good comes from God to man, the glory of it is not to be ascribed to the most generous desire nor the most industrious endeavor of man, but only and purely to the free grace and mercy of God. In Jacob's case, it was not of him that willeth, not of him that runneth. It was not the earnest will and desire of Rebekah that Jacob might have a blessing. It was not Jacob's haste to go get it, for he was compelled to run for it that procured him to the blessing, but only the mercy and the grace of God. The only reason why Israel received the blessing of God is because of God's grace. The only reason why we, as the elect, those that are Christians, I'm not going to assume that you're a Christian, but if you are based upon your relationship with God, the only reason why we are that is because of God's grace. The only reason why we experience the full inheritance of heaven is by God's grace. Our salvation is not dependent upon anything that we have done, but upon the righteousness and the grace of God. It is because God is righteous that we experience hope to begin with. If God wasn't righteous, then we would not have the authority to justify sinful mankind. D.S. Dockery. Commentator says this, God's choices show forth his power so that his name might be proclaimed in all of the earth. He had chosen Israel to serve his purposes as Lord over all. Only by faith are people declared righteous before God. Those who attempted to establish their righteousness on any other basis stumble over the Messiah. Talked to people multiple times and they said, are you a follower of Christ? Absolutely. Okay, well, what do you base that upon? I don't do many good, bad things. I keep a lot of the commandments. In statements like that, what you're doing is you're placing yourself in the position of God. You're saying that by my own good works, I am now declaring myself as being righteous. That doesn't cut it with God. God says the only way that we can restore our relationship is through the finished work of Jesus Christ. What He has done for us on the cross We have to place our faith and trust in Him. We didn't live a perfect life. Jesus did. Jesus was the only one that had the power and the authority to take on our punishment, something that we so duly deserved. That, that is salvation. The good news is is Jesus Christ coming to earth to die on a cross for us to restore our relationship with God. Salvation is a response to that good news. But it's living in light of that every single day. I've talked to people multiple times, and they said, I don't... And they've said it to me. I don't want to come to your church anymore because I just want to learn about Bible principles so that I can be a better person. They're missing the whole point. Learning about principles so that we can be a better person is now depending upon your actions to make you a better person. The Scriptures say that it's all, everything that needed to be done has already been done in Christ. So our identity with God is already satisfied in Christ. 
The reason why we oftentimes fall into sin is not because we don't have the power to overcome sin. The Holy Spirit gives us that and dwelling inside of us as Christians. The reason why we fall into sin is because we now love sin more than we love God. So we don't come to church to be a better person. We come to church to learn how we can grow in this spiritual life because if we based upon our relationship with God about what we've done and done and done and done and we do this in order for God to love us more, that's called legalism. We are already satisfied in God because of Christ. And so if, if you've never, if there's never been a point in your life where you've placed your faith and trust in Christ, in Christ alone, then the scriptures say that you are not a genuine follower of Christ. If we truly remember the full gospel and we truly live in the reality that it is through the gospel that we become more like Christ, we will no longer go to church in order to make God happy, but our motivation to go to church and grow in our spiritual walk will be out of a hunger and thirst to know more about God and serve our Redeemer. It is because of the righteousness and the mercy of God that we even have hope. Some could say, and Rich and I were talking about this a couple of weeks ago, some could say, how could a loving and righteous God allow people to go to hell? But this is the wrong perspective. The question really should be, how could a just and righteous God choose me as a sinner to be redeemed by His grace? That's what we really should be asking. God is righteous because God is God, because God is righteous to pray man has God's mercy. The final point is this. Point number three, the sovereign election of God reflects the righteousness of God. Look down at verses 17 and 18. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Now at first glance, it seems as if Paul is saying that God purposely uh, chose to harden Pharaoh's heart, in essence, no longer giving Pharaoh a chance for redemption. Tony Evans describes it this way. This hardening is not a predestination to damnation. It's an expression of God's prerogative to choose whom he will use to serve his purpose and how he will use them. Okay? Now, I have to be very clear. God's plan for Pharaoh and the nation of Israel was decided before Pharaoh was ever born. It's all part of God's plan. However, God did not force Pharaoh to sin. God did not force Pharaoh to, to uh, reject him, so to speak. God, God can't force anyone to sin because that would go against the very character of God. God knew Pharaoh's choices, and when Pharaoh chose to sin, God then utilized that to harden Pharaoh's heart. That doesn't go against his sovereignty. He knew what was going to happen from the very beginning, but God does not force anyone to sin. We don't need help to sin. We sin on our own all the time because we are sinners. But I want you to think about something for, for, for just a moment here. Even in light of Pharaoh's sin, God still used that in his sovereign plan as he does on a continuous daily basis. It, you know what? Hold your finger here. Let's, let's flip back to Jeremiah chapter 18. We're not going to read all of the verses here. But in Jeremiah chapter 18, there's an interesting principle that, that comes here to the prophet of Jeremiah that God uses to explain his right to sovereign work how he chooses. In Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 1 through 12, God sends a prophet Jeremiah to the potter's house for a special illustration. And so Jeremiah goes over to the potter's house, and while he's observing the potter throw the clay, Jeremiah noticed that the potter did not like his masterpiece. In fact, the clay was marred. The potter then destroyed his first work and began to create the masterpiece according to how he saw fit. The point that God was making is found in Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 6, when God says, O house of Israel, 
Can I not do with you as this potter, saith the Lord? Behold, as the clay is in the potter's sand, so are ye in mine, O house of Israel. Now, this illustration is not, not there to say that God makes mistakes. God doesn't mold something and then make a mistake and get mad and destroy it. God doesn't do that. God doesn't make mistakes. But the illustration is given in Jeremiah to illustrate that God and his sovereign working has the right to do whatever he wants to do in accordance to his overall divine plan. We as human beings, we, we have no say in the matter. We're God's creation. The point that God is delivering is that God ultimately has the right to govern how he sees fit. God used Pharaoh to display God's sovereign rule over the nation of Israel. However, without a full understanding of the context here, it would be easy to come to the conclusion that God is unfair and unjust. So what really happened with God dealings with Pharaoh? If you look at both the lives of Moses and Pharaoh, they're both examples of God's sovereign working. Both Pharaoh and Moses were born in pagan households. Both were raised in the Egyptian way. Both received the same type of education and both were afforded many of the same opportunities. But God in his sovereignty chose to use Moses to deliver the nation of Israel and chose to allow Pharaoh to inflict the Israelites. We see this type of working all the time. God chose Brandon Joyner to be the pastor. God chose you to do what you are doing in your particular life. But what we have to observe is the intricate details of the struggle between Israel and Pharaoh Pharaoh to fully understand the impact. We know that when Moses demanded that Pharaoh let God's people go, Pharaoh refused. At that moment, God could have easily removed Pharaoh and the entire nation of Israel, but God did not. Instead, God brought a series of unfortunate events to inflict Pharaoh and his kingdom, kind of like what we're experiencing right now in 2020, it seems like. I mean, we have a dust cloud floating around us right now from the Sahara Desert. Some of you may not have known that, but that's just crazy to think about. But we know those in the Old Testament as being the ten um, plagues. Now, they were far worse than what we were experiencing, but not good. Why would God do it this way? It says in Romans chapter 9, verse 17, that he might show his power, that he might be declared throughout all of the earth, as Paul points out. So at the tail end of verse 17, we see this motivation of God's sovereign working. It's so that God's name would be praised and glorified. This is not some narcissistic endeavor to fulfill an ego of a narcissistic God. God works so that his name can be glorified because when a person glorifies God, it is at that moment that they experience the joy and the satisfaction that they so desperately crave. But what about this whole hardening of Pharaoh's heart thing? It's easy to remember that it was Pharaoh that originally chose the sin, as I mentioned earlier, by refusing to listen to the demands of Moses. That was Pharaoh. God will not force anyone to sin, but that goes against the very nature of God because we don't need help when we sin. We're all sinners. God in his sovereignty, though, will use obedience and disobedience to accomplish his kingdom agenda. Our choices are no surprise to God when it comes to sin, but he uses that as part of his overall plan. We see that in the story of Joseph and his brothers. What did Joseph and his brothers do? His brothers captured Joseph, put him in a pit, lied to their father, sold Joseph into slavery. Obviously, that wasn't living a godly lifestyle. They were making sinful choices. But what did God do through all of that? Well, if you read the story of Joseph, you see that Joseph became the leader that he was in his particular nation. And Joseph then tells his brothers in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, Ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass as is this day to save much people alive. The same thing was happening with Pharaoh. 
God was righteous in his actions of hardening the heart of Pharaoh. Once again, God owes no grace to anyone. It is not our call to make as fallen creatures on whether or not God chooses to display his grace. I, I, I pray, I wish, and I hoped that everybody would be falling under the grace of God as the elect, but that's just not the case. We don't have the right or any say in that. We pray to God and we plead to Him and we're faithful and we share the gospel and we live like good ambassadors of Christ. But that ultimate decision is not up to us. We leave that up to God. Just as I have no right to walk into your home and change your rules of your household, we have no right to choose how this world will be governed. We will be given the privilege of living in God's world, but only God has the right to govern His creation. So when it comes to this question, is God unrighteous? The answer is emphatically, of course not. That's what Paul says, God forbid. Warren Wearsby says this, election has nothing to do with justice, but rather free grace. God is unjust if He chooses one and leaves another, some people often say, but the purpose of God goes beyond justice. For if God did only what was just, He would have to condemn all of us. Paul uses Moses and Pharaoh as proof that God can do whatever He wishes in dispensing His grace and mercy. No matter, nobody deserves God's mercy and nobody condemned God for His choice of Israel or bypassing other nations. So how can we, in conclusion, be encouraged by all of this? The sovereignty of God corresponds with the nature of God. God is just. He is a righteous God. Therefore, all of God's rule is based upon the nature of God. So we can be encouraged in the fact that even when things don't make sense, God's dealing with us is righteous. We don't serve a God who operates based on a whim. We serve a God that operates only based upon holiness. When we grasp this truth, it is then that we can fully say with confidence, as Romans 8, 28 tells us, that all things do work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to His purpose. But the question here this morning is, have you have you taken the grace of God that He offers through His Son, through salvation, as your own? I talked to a guy not too long ago, and he knew everything here. But oftentimes, people miss heaven by 12 inches from here to here. There's a difference between knowing the facts and taking what God has given to us and, and, and taking it as our own, taking Christ into our heart. Mm -hmm.